times long gone, in days of yore, there are legends and tales of dark folklore. Round candlelight and fireside, the tales are shared, enchanting dark secrets in hushed tones declared. And from those days, both present and past, we beseech you now to brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleepless tales commence, fellow travelers. I'm your guide, David Cummings. I have to begin with a dire warning. Yes, the end is near. You see, if you were planning on making your way into the mountains to visit the horrifyingly haunted Stanley Hotel to attend the event known as Spirited Giving on May 10th, well, let's just say you'd better have your tickets already. Yes, the event featuring a lineup of acclaimed horror writers in an intimate setting, along with a live performance by your beloved No Sleep podcast, is nearly sold out. So delay further at your peril, lest you miss the chance to see and meet people like Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Goodnight, Sarah Thomas, Brandon Boone, Graham Rowett, and the delightfully superb David Cummings. Oh, I should have been a bit more humble there. Oh, well. Yes, we'll be there, along with fan-favorite author Gemma Amore and many others. Check the link in the show notes, but be quick about it. Speaking of exciting things, we're at the halfway point of our trip to Goat Valley Campgrounds. It's episode six this week, and things are really starting to heat up for Kate as she reflects back on the ways her family have been affected by the connection to the campground. And that's got me thinking about inherited curses and responsibilities. For those of you who listened to our previous season, 16, you'll know that I came into possession of a storage unit filled with documents and books, many of which hold immense power. I still own the contents of that unit. Well, I still own the unit itself also, but I moved the books elsewhere, just in case certain untoward fiends take it upon themselves to get up to any more funny business. But since hiding those documents, I've done nothing with them. I haven't shared any more tales from their archives. I haven't allowed certain occult experts I know to check out the collection. And I wonder if I have a responsibility to do more than just hold on to them. I don't know, maybe I'm just overthinking it. It's just been a combination of Goat Valley and the fact that the place I'm going on vacation to soon has its own strange history, which has never been revealed. I was reading up about it online. One guy even called it, quote, the hippie version of Area 51, end quote, which made me chuckle, although it's not very accurate, I hope. I don't think my new vacation spot is the site of alien technology, anyway. <laughs> uh, but I guess I'll see when I get there. 
And now, let's get to our latest episode. In our first tale, we join couple Eric and Amanda as they spend their honeymoon camping. Oh, but don't worry. Thankfully, they're deep in the woods rather than chilling in Goat Valley. But in this tale, shared with us by author Travis Liebert, we're introduced to another variety of tent-based horror. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Sarah Thomas. So look carefully past the safety of your campfire. Make sure you can see the forest for the trees. You don't want your vacation to suck when you're in The Grove. Everything turned to darkness as we drove beneath the dense canopy of the Black Forest. I glanced over at Amanda in the passenger seat. She seemed entranced by the beauty of the trees. I didn't blame her. We'd been driving through the woods for days, but by then we'd reached the densest part of the forest. We hadn't seen any civilization for miles. We were completely alone, surrounded by trees that stood like dark giants in a fantastical world. Amanda noticed me watching her, and grinned before returning her gaze to the forest. My smile widened. Our honeymoon trip had been amazing so far. It was nice to just get out and explore. Both she and I had spent the past several years burdened by the workload of graduate school. But we were finally done. Her with a master's degree in literature, and me with a corresponding degree in philosophy. It makes a lot of sense. What does? I maneuvered the van around a large branch that had fallen into the road. All the local legends that eventually became the works of the Brothers Grimm. When you look at this dark landscape, you can't help but think there's something more out there. I nodded. The forest truly was a strange place. It seemed as if it existed outside the normal bounds of our world. Something on the fringes, where anything might stumble through the swirls of fog and rows of looming trees. One felt very small in a place like this. Hell, everything felt small here where something greater than our world seemed to weigh down upon the forest like a black sun. I heard Amanda gasp in surprise beside me. My foot instinctively tapped the brakes, but I didn't come to a complete stop. What's wrong? She sighed and held her hands to her chest, shaking her head. Nothing. I could have sworn I saw something giant walking through the forest. <laughs> she rubbed her eyes. I must be going crazy. Maybe you really did see something. If monsters did exist, then this would be a perfect place for them to reside. Oh, shut up, Eric. She punched me in the shoulder. I chuckled and continued driving. About 20 minutes later, we came upon a clearing that seemed fit for camping. I parked off the side of the road and got out to examine the area. I was surprised to see that there were no signs of anyone having camped here before. The ground was completely untouched. We had taken a lot of strange, winding side roads, but I hadn't expected to get this far off the main path. I shrugged. The whole point of this trip was to get away from people, so I supposed this was ideal. We took the bare necessities out of the van, but decided to set things up later. Amanda wanted to relax and read for a while, so I chose to wander off and explore the forest. She sat curled up in the trunk of the van with a dense tome in her lap and waved as I left the clearing. Don't get lost! I won't! As soon as I left the clearing, 
I was assaulted on all sides by dense foliage and uneven terrain. I couldn't find any paths nearby. I was right about how far we'd gotten from the main path. No one had been here in ages. I paced with my hands thrust deep in my pockets, casually observing the beauty of the dark forest. I noticed a strange number of large fallen branches on the ground. Normally this would have been nothing worth noting, but they were all massive and seemed fresh. Many of the branches seemed to come from young, healthy trees. It didn't look as if they could have fallen in a storm. I shrugged it off and continued my walk. After about 30 minutes, I decided to head back and begin setting up camp. I found Amanda curled up in the trunk, fast asleep. I considered leaving her there and just sleeping in a van rather than the tent, but the ground seemed soft and I wanted to stretch out in an open space. I gently woke her and we began setting up camp. It wasn't long before the tent was set up and we had a small fire burning. We sat around it, eating dinner in contented silence. Amanda rested her head on my shoulder as I finished my meal. By then, the fire had burned low and I was feeling drowsy. We curled up in the tent and were soon fast asleep. I woke to the sound of something moving through the forest. It sounded massive. Not bare massive, but even bigger. Something gargantuan. I thought I heard one of those giant branches snap as whatever was out there stepped on it. I could hear it moving closer and closer to the clearing. I strained my ears and could have sworn I heard whispering. It was just barely audible, but it sounded as if dozens of voices were muttering to one another just out of earshot. I struggled to keep my breathing under control. Amanda was still asleep beside me. She had always been an incredibly heavy sleeper. I considered waking her but decided not to until I knew it was absolutely necessary. Suddenly there was a deafening crack followed by a crash and the sound of broken glass. The lumbering footsteps stomped around for a while, then retreated back into the forest. I sat there for what seemed like an eternity, holding my breath until the forest returned to its typical nocturnal state. The noise had woken Amanda, and she asked what was going on, her voice groggy and confused. I grabbed my flashlight and stumbled out of the tent. My terror increased when I couldn't get the damn thing to turn on, but it finally flickered to life. An enormous tree had fallen on the car. I rolled around, frantically looking for what had caused those footsteps. I turned my flashlight back to the tree and observed the damage. The van was almost certainly totaled. The tree had fallen in such a way that the engine was definitely crushed. Amanda came out, still bleary-eyed, to see what was going on. She gasped when she saw the crushed van. What happened? I was still searching the depths of the forest for the thing I had heard. Something pushed a tree on it? I bounced my light from one spot to another, hoping it would happen upon the creature that did this. What? A fucking monster or something? I heard it walking around and then it pushed the tree down. My hands shook and it felt as if I was breathing through a thin straw. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't pull enough air into my lungs. Eric. Amanda put her hands on my shoulders. There's no monster. A tree just fell. That's all. I couldn't control my breathing and everything suddenly became too much. The sounds of crickets were too loud, and the sensation of Amanda's hands on me felt wrong. It felt like I was suffocating. Hey, you're having a panic attack. I was focused on fidgeting with my hands, but nodded to show I had heard her. Everything was too stimulating. I simultaneously wanted to move and to lie down and feel nothing. Remember your breathing techniques. Amanda started to breathe loudly enough for me to hear. 
stay in sync with me. I breathed with her and tried to relax. After a few minutes, I'd successfully calmed down. That was the first time I'd had a panic attack in years. They used to be constant. Anytime I was under even the slightest amount of stress, I would lose all control. My throat would feel like it was closing up, and suddenly everything became too much to bear. I'd gotten better about it with time. I was a little ashamed that I'd let myself lose control like that again, though. I was thankful Amanda was there to help me. Are you okay? I'm fine. I, I, I guess I just got a little freaked out. I was still sure I'd heard something outside the tent just before the tree fell, but I knew there was no point in arguing. If I had handled myself better, then perhaps I would have had some credibility, but having a panic attack right after claiming a monster destroyed our car didn't exactly help. We ended up staying awake all night, hoping against all hope that once the sun arose, maybe our van was salvageable. But to no one's surprise, the morning sun only revealed more damage. The massive tree had fallen across the length of the vehicle, bisecting it and crushing it from end to end. I examined the base of the tree. It hadn't snapped like an old or sick tree would. Rather, it had been uprooted, torn from the ground. I pointed it out to Amanda, and she said the soil must have been too loose for such a large tree. I doubted her appraisal, but said nothing. What now? I shrugged. There's no cell phone service out here. We'll either have to find help or walk until we get somewhere with service. One of us should stay here with the stuff. Someone might come by on the road. I thought back to the thing I'd heard the night before and shook my head. I think we should stick together. If someone drives by and sees the crushed van, they'll probably call in a search party anyway. We can leave a note saying that we went looking for help. Amanda nodded her agreement and we began to pack. She decided to bring only the bare necessities, as we might have to walk for a long time. I recalled that we hadn't seen any signs of civilization for miles while driving here, so we decided to follow the road in the opposite direction in the hopes that we would come across another town. We packed as much food as we could carry in addition to sleeping bags, the tent, and other miscellaneous supplies. With more than a few spare glances back at the wreckage of our van, we set off in search of help. We walked along the road for several hours. I began to notice more large branches blocking the path, as well as countless fallen trees. I realized that if anyone lived nearby, they'd have already cleared the road, but hope kept us moving forward. The last town we'd passed was too far behind us to reasonably walk there. Eventually, the sun dipped low in the sky and our legs began to tire. I observed that the road seemed even worse than before. The sensation that we were moving further from the civilization sat like a cold block of ice in my gut. Amanda didn't seem to be as affected. She was just as observant in me and had surely noticed the road's condition, but she had always been more inclined toward optimistic thought. She probably still believed that we would stumble upon some village tucked away in the hills. We moved to the side of the road at the next clearing we passed and began to set up camp. The sun hung just above the horizon as I struggled to assemble the tent. One of the pieces had snapped when we took it down earlier and I had to improvise. As I was doing so, I heard a noise in the forest to my left. It sounded like a large creature running through the underbrush. The thing sounded huge. My heart began to pound as it drew closer. I couldn't help but recall the creature I had heard the night before. I grabbed one of the tent's plastic rods and wielded it like a weapon. The thing bounded closer and closer until a large deer sprang from the shrubbery and ran past. It nearly barreled over Amanda as it disappeared into the forest on the other side of the clearing. Holy shit! Were you planning on killing it with that? 
she gestured to the thin, flexible rod I held. Better than nothing. I shrugged and returned to assembling the tent. Eventually, I managed to get it together and began to help Amanda build a fire. We tried to make it as big as possible in hopes the smoke would alert people to our location. We sat around the roaring blaze until the moon was high above us, our hopes dying with every passing moment. After a couple of hours, we decided to douse the flames. We were both exhausted, and Amanda fell asleep almost as soon as she laid down. However, I tossed and turned for much of the night. I couldn't tear my thoughts away from that enormous thing I'd heard the night before, or the strange whispering that accompanied it. However, I managed to drift into a fitful sleep after several hours. Suddenly, Amanda was rousing me, and a high-pitched sound filled the air. She urged me to get up over and over, her voice frantic. It was still dark outside. I rubbed the sleep from my eyes and sat up only to realize that the high-pitched screaming was the sound of a baby crying in the forest. Do you hear that? I nodded. The sound was unmistakable. A baby was crying somewhere out there in the darkness. We both moved at the same time to grab our flashlights and stood outside listening intently. The noise came from the forest to our right. Amanda started in that direction, but I grabbed her arm and held her back. What are you doing? What if it's a trap? A trap? Are you insane? There's a fucking baby out there that might need our help, and you think it's a trap? She jerked her arm away and glared at me. Look, it's just... Something isn't right here, and I... She began running toward the source of the sound before I had a chance to finish. I chased after her as the beam of my flashlight bounced around haphazardly. We entered the dense underbrush, and for a moment I thought I'd lost her. But I caught a glimpse of her red shirt in a tangle of trees and veered in that direction. The baby's cries grew louder as I approached. I burst through a wall of shrubbery to find Amanda standing before a massive, twisted tree. She looked up at it in a daze. The crying sounds came from where she stood, and I briefly thought she held the baby in her arms, but... Then I saw the terrible truth. A child's face pressed out of the tree's wood, its expression contorted in agony, and its mouth thrown open in a scream of torment. The face strained at the wooden prison that entrapped it as if it was trying to tear itself free. The wood flexed around it like rubber. Both Amanda and I stood frozen before the monstrous sight. What the fuck was going on? Before I could say anything, a great wooden limb swooped down and impaled Amanda. It snatched her limp form from the earth and she disappeared in the tangled darkness of the canopy. I watched it all happen as if it were in slow motion. My breath caught in my throat and I felt something between a scream and a sob begin to rise in my chest. Before I could react, a countless number of faces sprouted from the wood of the tree. They all sighed and writhed in a tumultuous expression of ecstasy. Their tongues reached out from the wood and I watched as thick, red fluid ran down the bark. The whole tree seemed to shiver with pleasures as the blood entered its eager, waiting mouths. The faces, now satisfied, silently retreated back into the monstrous tree. I stood there in stunned silence, frozen by a horrible concoction of terror, panic, grief, and confusion. The spell broke when a horrible creaking, tearing sound filled the air. The trunk of the tree before me split in half. One of the halves raised itself, its roots only loosely connected to the ground, and stepped toward me. Holy fuck, the thing was walking. I stared in awe for a moment, but then it took another lumbering step and I was struck with terror. 
I immediately turned and ran the other direction. As if reacting to my movement, the tree sped up, and its tendrilled legs began a steady march behind me. Whispers filled the air, and I spared a glance over my shoulder to see that innumerable faces had once again sprouted from the tree's bark. I nearly tripped and turned back to watch my footing. One wrong move and it would be over. That thing would get me, and I would meet the same fate as Amanda. That thought almost stopped me dead in my tracks. Amanda was dead. My wife was dead. What point was there anymore? But something kept me running. Despite my grief, I still had a sense of self-preservation, and nothing terrified me more than the thought of those twisted limbs carrying me into the darkness. Branches crashed down around me as the sprawling limbs of the creature tore through the tops of other trees. Nothing seemed to slow it down, and it maintained a steady pace as it hunted me. Suddenly, a voice rang out from behind. Eric! It was soothing, and completely at odds with the current situation. I turned to see a lone face peering down at me. It was Amanda's. Her features were largely obscured by the tree's bark, but I knew it was her. A gentle smile spread across her face. I slowed down at the sight of my wife, but the looming presence of the tree from which she protruded brought me back to reality. I faced forward and tried to ignore her cries behind me. I veered into a dense thicket of trees, which seemed to momentarily slow the enormous creature. Deafening cracks filled the air as it tore through the forest. Briefly out of sight, I dove behind a wide oak and shrouded myself in foliage. Now free, the thing slowed and began to look for me. Nothing about its movement was quiet, and I heard it circling me, growing ever closer. Eric, come on out, honey. It's okay. We like it here. And you will too. I tried to control my breathing, but it became difficult. I could feel another panic attack rising. My breath came in short spurts, and it felt like the underbrush was suffocating me. It took every ounce of my willpower to not burst out into the open air. I remembered the breathing techniques I had always done with Amanda, and tried to focus. A few moments later, I was under control, though only barely, and listening intently for the creature. I hadn't heard it move in a while. I heard a whipping sound and a great branch swooped down and tore at the foliage above me. It just barely missed me, shredding the plants that had previously concealed my form. I was completely out in the open. I dashed forward, just barely dodging another limb. The thing came crashing through the underbrush, wildly swinging for me, each time missing me by mere inches. Eric, please. I just want to hold you in my arms. Don't you love me? It pained me to ignore her, but I knew Amanda was gone. That voice belonged to the tree, and I wouldn't fall for its tricks. I ran on endlessly, until it felt like I would collapse at any moment. I could feel the ground shaking beneath my feet as the thing pounded after me. It was tireless, never stopping or slowing. I knew it would catch me eventually. Just then I saw that the forest thinned out ahead. I thought I had come across another clearing when I burst forth into open air. I stood in a massive field that led up a steep hill. The forest was behind me and I saw nothing but plains stretching endlessly ahead. I glanced back to see the towering tree-like creature standing motionless at the edge of the forest. It had stopped and only watched as I ran across the grass. Perhaps it couldn't leave. It made sense. After all, the forest was its domain. Maybe that's why no one had ever reported seeing them. They only exist in a limited and unexplored area. Regardless of why, I had won. I began laughing maniacally 
and threw my hands up in victory. The terrible events of the past 48 hours still weighed heavily upon me, but for the moment, I was triumphant, and I relished it. I kept running, my veins pumping with adrenaline. As I climbed the hill before me, a great chorus filled the air. The voice of hundreds of people rose from the other side. It sounded like some kind of festival or something. I realized there must be a village nearby. That must have been why the trees stopped chasing me. It was avoiding civilization. A sense of relief filled me, and I eagerly crested the hill. I looked down to see hundreds of those trees, each one riddled with faces that chattered and whispered and writhed amongst themselves. I froze at the grotesque sight. Suddenly the voices stopped, and the thousands of faces turned towards me in silence. Then, with bellows of ecstasy and excitement, they tore their roots from the earth and began to hunt. It's always cool when you're given a chance to show your pals where you grew up, especially when you're bringing them all the way from the U.S. to somewhere cool like Romania. But in this tale, shared with us by author Alex Woodrow, things have changed in the decades since Codron left home. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Atticus Jackson, and Nicole Goodnight. So when you go back to your roots, you'd better hope that things are well. Otherwise, you'll have to toss aside any hope you might have and simply abandon. We spent a long time driving through the heat looking for that damned village. The last stretch of road was all potholes and corn stalks growing out of arm-sized cracks in the concrete. Battered and dusty, we ditched the rental in a shaded spot by an ancient-looking city hall with a crumbly, complex moon dial above the front door. Codran, my man! Where to? Josh did his best to pronounce my name, but Codran wasn't exactly corn-fed American. Every time he said it, I felt a bit like a cowardly fish. We can probably make it halfway up before nightfall. I'd rather have gone back to a cozy hotel instead, put my feet up, have a beer, but my overly enthusiastic internet friends had been adamant. So damned adamant. We're not going to be in, like, any sort of trouble or anything, right? Ashley leaned over a chain divider to take pictures of the moon dial from a better angle. Unsatisfied, she stepped over it and into the carefully planted flower bed. I shook my head. I know a place up the hill we can crash. Even if I didn't, it's all free camping. We could just pitch. No, but like, you know... I raised my fingers to my mouth and mimed long canines, putting on my most exaggerated Russian-Romanian accent. You want to know whether the children of the night are going to come after us? <laughs> she giggled, like that wasn't exactly what she'd been asking. 
Well, isn't this their homeland? Hollywood's their homeland, and they can stay there. You're here for the real deal, so put that garbage behind you. Josh grabbed Ashley around the waist and hoisted her back over the chain fence. Don't worry, baby. Nothing's gonna happen to Team Joshley. I gagged a little and turned away before I could take back all the nice things I'd ever said about them. Josh shouted down to us from way ahead on the path. Man, this place is the coolest! Sweaty and gasping, I waved back. What's this place called again? I want to make a post. Honestly, Ashley had her phone spot-welded to her hand. I'd really rather we didn't infest the countryside with tourists. How about an abandoned village in rural Transylvania? <laughs> That's too many words. Josh walked backward up the path and beamed at her. How about Spooksville, Transylvania, babe? Perfect! I groaned. Well, it was either that or bringing droves of Americans down on my childhood home. They meant well, but the place wasn't safe for tourists. It wasn't even safe for me. Stone walls and carved beams nestled between hedgerows and plum trees, barely recognizable as the ghosts of houses they'd once been. I knew them well, though. People had lived there. As far as my brain was concerned, on some level, they still lived there because I had no idea where they were now, if anywhere. Nowhere, maybe. Is that a beer marquee? Josh stood before a squat gray building surrounded by crumbling, faded houses and overgrown fields. I laughed at his frown. Silva, that's the village pub and where we'll be sleeping tonight. I figured we'd find it in one piece. A poured cement stoop in front of the little white door was home to three square plastic tables, once red, but now faded by the sun to pastel pink. Cloth umbrellas stacked against the wall housed spiders and little lizards hiding from the midday sun. The village was abandoned a decade or so ago, not the Middle Ages. Even before that, people were poor. If it was cheap and it worked, we used it. You should have seen how many car doors were held together with wire. No wire on this one. Josh pulled with all his strength, and the front door budged. But years and rain had made it swell, and it dragged, growling across the concrete. At least that meant once we shut it behind us for the night, nobody would be able to open it without waking us up. I wasn't sure why that gave me comfort, considering we hadn't seen people in hours. It was cool inside. The smell of musty old dust that got damp and dry over and over filled my nose all the way to the back, as familiar as if it were family. More plastic tables, these ones bright red, sat to one side. There was a bar and a small wood-burning stove on the other side, and behind the bar, newspaper-lined shelves held dusty bottles. Josh looked around. Quaint. Is the booze still drinkable, do you think? I'll get us the good stuff. He stalked out, and within moments, the sound of plastic dragging across concrete reached me. This is not what I signed up for. I was fine with her complaining. It was part of the package deal, and she didn't mean most of it. 
She was the one who couldn't wait to get out there and document everything. The shelves were stocked with the regular low-income culprits. Cuervo, Jack, and Martini bottles stood proudly on the top shelves, even though they were crap compared to the local brew. People thought everything foreign was better. They were clueless. I grabbed one of the rounded bottles at the bottom, dusted it off, and went out to find my friends lounging in the sun. What'd you get us? I showed it to Josh and enjoyed his confused frown for a moment. Ashley wrinkled her nose. Is that some sort of mold in there? Look more closely. Josh figured it out first. Whoa. Dude. How'd they get a whole pair in there? Is the bottle, like, welded together or something? I turned it every way in the light to show him the seamless glass. Nope. Local trick. I'm surprised nobody outside has ever heard of it. They take the empty bottle and tie it in place over the young fruit just as it starts to form. It grows like it would in a greenhouse. When it's fully grown, they just snap the whole thing off, pour alcohol over it, and there you go. A perfectly preserved pear that's probably older than I am. Will it taste like pear? Taste? I giggled and uncorked the bottle, almost losing my knees to the hauntingly lovely embrace of the smell of home. This is clear tuica, my friend, not some sugary cocktail. Don't worry, you won't taste a thing. As soon as the light went, so did the heat. Licking orange Cheeto dust off his fingers, Josh leaned back by the cheerfully crackling stove. We haven't gotten drunk together since that time in group chat when we set this trip up. I may or may not vaguely recall that. <laughs> you told us about the vampires. If you don't stop calling them that, I'm going to personally dig up that stoker guy and make his every bone pay for it. Yeesh, all right. Tell us your side then, Spookmaster. Ashley stood to attention. Hang on, if you're going to tell us the story, I want to get it for my channel. I groaned, but let her get on with it. I'd known them for years. We were online gaming together before they ever hooked up. And one thing was for sure, telling Ashley no wasn't worth the drama and pouting that would extend, in all likelihood, well into the next day. After a few minutes of fiddling, she propped the phone up to her liking. I'm getting the fire, too, and you're just a shady silhouette. Could it be better if I planned it? I'll ask you some questions, okay? I nodded. And three, two... We're here in Spooksville, Transylvania with our terror tour guide, C. He's about to take us on a trip through an abandoned village. How did that happen? It's hard to be sure. People grow old and die. Younger ones leave. This place isn't unique. There are hundreds of abandoned villages throughout Romania. But this one's special, isn't it? You grew up here. I did. Ever see anything strange? I hesitated for a moment wondering which story to tell them first. Some of them were too good to break out right away. Some of them I never wanted to tell. When I was a kid, my cousin Michna had trouble. He was 10 years older than me, 16 at the time, and engaged to a village girl. Engaged at 16? That wasn't unusual. They weren't going to be married for a few years anyway, but they'd been engaged forever. Anyway, the girl died. I can't remember what of, but 
Take your pick of diseases that are probably curable today in a civilized town. That's awful. One evening, he showed up at our house, just as the light turned gray. He'd been walking the cows down the hill, he said, and felt this sudden urge to stop and look to the graveyard. He took a few steps toward it, and suddenly all the cowbells went silent. That never happens. You hear them for miles in every direction. He said it was darker, too, like he'd fallen asleep and woke up hours later. And right in front of him stood a young woman, all dressed in white, a white veil on her head. A bride? When women die unwed here, they're buried in bride's clothes. They married death, see? His fiance? There she was, rushing right past him like a gust of freezing air, smelling like the grave. Then she was gone. What happened then? He went home and found all the cows in the yard, lying in the grass, dead. Then he came to us for shelter. He said the specter of death looked for him around every corner. He looked so pale. The next day, his parents took him to a hospital in town for some sort of treatment. My grandmother made all kinds of blessings and spells for him for about a month. I'm not sure what happened after that. I looked after I moved away, but I couldn't find him. Did people here practice a lot of occult stuff? We didn't think of it like that. It was just normal life, as real as science. It happens all over the country, even now. It's not like we're talking about ancient history. No longer than 12 years ago or so, a friend of my grandmother's, she always went on about how they exchanged stitching patterns, was widowed. She came to my grandmother one night to complain about her dead husband. <whistles> Ashley let out a dramatic whistle, but beneath her exaggerated act, there was real terror, and I enjoyed every drop of it. The poor woman couldn't sleep, couldn't eat. Her dead husband was making noises in the attic at night, poisoning the food, turning the earth sour, drinking the well dry. The dead are always thirsty. She just wanted to move on after losing a loved one. And this foul thing touched every aspect of her life. But you keep telling us these aren't vampires? We call them Strigoi, and they're closer to a troubled spirit than anything else. They don't drink blood, fall in love, or throw mad parties. They don't live. They only haunt and harrow. Is there any way to stop them? The villagers went to the graveyard with a horse, as per custom. You lead the horse to the grave you suspect holds the Strogoi. If it jumps over the grave, that means everything is fine. But this one? It stomped and foamed and bucked and refused to jump. That's how they knew. Did you see it? My grandmother wouldn't let me said it had touched me. She went, though. They dug him up, and my grandmother said he was as fresh as a lily. He jerked and spat at one of the boys by the graveside, who fainted right away. They had a big fire going nearby with long carpentry nails glowing red hot in it. The smith took one of the nails and placed it inside the ear of the corpse, then hammered it out the other side. They were wrapped, and it fed me in ways I couldn't even understand. Maybe because nobody ever listened to our real stories. Maybe because I knew how much more I had to show them. The Strogoi shrieked and hissed, then settled down. They stuffed his mouth with garlic for good measure, then shut the casket and put him back in his grave. That night, it was quiet. And then? 
I don't know. I didn't believe half this stuff. Oh, crap. Ashley fumbled at her phone. Battery died. It's cool, babe. We brought a power bank. Josh was already elbow deep in his backpack. Within moments, lights from her phone screen flashed across her face. The neon yellow, magenta, and blue only served to highlight how unearthly dark it was now that the fire was dying down. I stepped out for a moment to get some air and stretch. There were more stars than even I'd remembered, and more silence. It felt like I'd started something by telling them our history, but I suddenly felt unsure. I searched the horizon for a light, a house, a car, a fire on a hillside, anything, but there was nothing there. I slunk back inside, and the little room felt like a tomb that no horse would jump over. I woke with a start, my heart loud inside my head. It was pitch black and nothing stirred, and yet something had woken me. As soon as I heard it again, I knew what it was. There was a cuckoo singing somewhere above the house. Hoo-hoo, hoo-hoo. Little owls, or nocturnal Athena, they were a native here. I hadn't heard one in decades, but I'd never forget the sound. They said when a cuckoo cried over a house at night, somebody in it was going to die. Somehow, even in the indigo depths of sleep, your mind never let you forget alarms like that. Ever since I was little, their cries would wake me. A funny thought crossed my mind. At some point before memory, someone would have had to point their song out to me and tell me the meaning. Otherwise, how would five-year-old me even know it? but they only sing at three in the morning. I wondered who it might have been, and why. I woke up again, this time with white light flooding through the grimy windows and deep pain in every bone of my body. Rise and shine, guys. Long day ahead. Ashley groaned and turned over. Josh raised his head. What time is it? Go time. Ugh. Pass me the water. I reached for the full bottle that we'd left on the counter and almost smacked myself in the mouth when I lifted it. It was much lighter than I'd expected. Empty. Josh shuffled slowly into a seated position. Water? We're out, I think. I turned the bottle in the light and saw it covered in dozens of fingerprints. Quickly, before he could wake all the way, I wiped them off. I didn't know why I did that. Why I didn't want Josh to see them. One of them must have been up at night, thirsty. That was all. Out? How? Pale and tired, he shaded his eyes against the morning light. I refused to worry. Whatever. We passed a cattle trough not far back, and the water's clean there. Let's just get out. The higher up we got, the more I succumbed to random memories. Stories told while shucking corn, going out to harvest potatoes, that one time by the fountain. Not a house or tree or pillar passed by without greeting me in some way. My friends were both quiet and pensive. For once, I seemed to have the most energy. What's up, you guys? Didn't sleep well? 
Ashley looked at me through half-closed lashes. Mm. Shut up. I feel like I haven't slept in years. I want coffee. I want a bed. I don't know what's up, man. It feels like I got anti-sleep. My limbs feel hollow. He did look so very pale. If you'd rather turn back. I half hoped he would. Was it too late now? No, it's fine. Let's keep going. Maybe we can make good time and be back in town tonight. The schoolhouse passed us on the right. Roof caved in and yard filled with nettles. There were no memories waiting for me behind dark windows there. But I sort of remembered hurtling down that same road in a red Dacia 1300 that my uncle drove. The seatbelt digging into his sweat-stained white shirt. That must have been the night they sent me away for good. Do you guys remember when I told you about this village? Sort of. We were all pretty wasted that night. Ashley nodded, quiet, focused on putting one foot in front of the other. Won't let the growling fool you. We're all ears. Today's sort of the ten-year anniversary of when I left. That's why I was making such a fuss about coming here when you guys decided to come along. Anyway, I don't remember how it started, but I know for sure something was up. My grandmother was upset and frantic. She talked about things going badly for a while. Lambs born wrong and crops failing. Odd noises and omens. Water run dry. Cattle stopped giving milk. That sort of thing. I paused to catch my breath. In the distance, I could just make out the massive, carved wooden gateway that marked the entrance to my family's yard. One day, a Romani woman came to our house. That wasn't odd. We traded with her all the time. Eggs for herbs and that sort of thing. I remember greeting her at our gate. Her skirt was the most colorful thing I'd ever seen in my life. I pointed to the wolf-head carved pillars standing on either side of a gate, wide enough to let a horse-drawn cart pass through. That one there. That was ours. Whoa. Holding up pretty well, huh? It was. The fence and gate stood as it should, fighting plank and nail against age and rot and the weather. The house beyond it, on the other hand, was a wreck. My heart shattered audibly. I pushed the gate open and stepped into the weed-choked yard. See back there? That was a barn. That's where the Romani woman went. She and my grandmother scoured every inch of the place, looking for something. I don't know what. Eventually, they found the right spot. Only wooden beams stuck out where the barn used to be, but I still recognized the corner in question. It was in my every dream. They sent me to bring back a bucket of water. I asked why, and my grandmother said a very old spirit woke up and was hurting the village, and the Romani woman would help us get rid of it. She said it had been sent by the devil because the village was doing too well, and only we could stop it. Do you believe she was telling the truth? It was the first time they'd directly come out and asked me anything like that. But I couldn't bring myself to lie. I think so. We stood in silence for a moment, watching the barn with suspicious eyes. I brought the bucket in a hurry. I was terrified. They dug a hole in one corner. She sloshed some of the water around to draw it there. Evil was always thirsty, she said. 
Then she put the bucket in the hole and covered it with a handkerchief and handfuls of hay. Oh, sounds like a trap. Exactly like a trap. She told us not to go near it, and she'd be back in seven days. Josh stood in the doorway, fidgeting like a startled foal. That's kind of creepy, man. I shrugged. Come on, let's keep going up to the well and I'll tell you the rest of it. Who put a well on top of a hill anyway? Josh panted, heavy with last night's unknown toils. Who puts a well on top of a hill? I have no idea. It's probably the weirdest thing about this place. I never understood why or how. Nobody ever used this one. But there it is, and always has been. And there's the graveyard. Can we stop for a sec? Sure. I need to finish the story anyway. Wild plum trees near the well gave us shade. Ashley leaned against the mossy gray wellstones, heaved a big sigh, and polished off the last of our water. So what happened with the bucket trap? The Romanian woman came back seven days later. We all went into the barn, and you could feel there was something weird in the air. They lifted the hay, and the Romanian woman shouted, We got it! And started singing an unsong, a sort of counter-curse, I guess. She tied the handkerchief over the mouth of the bucket tightly. When she lifted it out, I could swear something twitched inside. It looked like there was a hand in there, tapping at the bottom of the white fabric, poking it. My grandmother saw it, screamed about the devil, and leaned onto a bale of hay in a half-faint. I didn't know what to do. They stared at me, speechless. The Romanian woman handed me the bucket and told me to throw it out somewhere. She said, hurry, get rid of it, get it out of here before it escapes again. I was terrified and didn't understand she wanted me to dump it outside of the village. What did you do? I took the bucket and got rid of it in the only place I could think of. I looked at the well, chewing my lip. Ashley put it together first and jumped off the edge, gasping. <gasps> Wait, did something move in there? Probably just frogs. Dude, you dumped it in the village well? Seriously? I was a kid, man. Barely ten. No parents, nobody but my grandmother to take care of me. She was unconscious. Give me a break. Did it do anything? I don't know. You do understand that all of this might just be complete nonsense, right? A grifter trying to fleece my family for money? Someone who slipped a frog into a bucket? It could be nothing. I sounded desperate and ridiculous, even to myself. But they sent you away. That very same night, I was in a car with my uncle. He dropped me with some relatives and left me there. Never came back. Ashley sidestepped slowly until she was pressed up against Josh, looking for comfort. I don't even know if I should be taking pictures of any of this. I, I don't think they could ever do this place justice. How would I even explain it so that an outsider could understand? Yeah, tell me about it. There's no way. I tried to tell you guys. There's no way at all. So, what? They thought you said something loose? Is that the real reason why everyone left? That's one theory, yeah. Josh nodded like he got it, but I could tell he just wanted to get the hell out. 
Ashley couldn't decide whether to keep her eyes glued to the well or to the graveyard beyond it. Guys, I know this is going to sound crazy because it's, it's like broad daylight, but I swear I keep seeing something weird, like something's moving, but when I look at it, it's gone. Babe, take it easy. It's probably just the heat, okay? We'll head back down now. I think we've had enough fun. Right, Cod? I wanted to say yes so badly. I'd wanted to turn back the whole trip, and maybe we could have. Maybe before we got there, I could have, in good conscience, said it was all a bunch of hogwash and left it alone. But now, I knew better. My grandmother had, too. She'd written me after I left, telling me it was going to get a lot worse before it got better, and how I shouldn't blame myself. I called her senile. But was she? The whole damned village. Wiped out. Wiped to hell off the face of the earth. Abandoned, we told ourselves. But who abandoned it? Had anyone actually walked out? They watched me with pained expressions. I realized I'd been biting my nails hard enough to draw blood at the corner of my thumb. I'm so sorry, guys. Behind them, the well bubbled up, roiling mud and shadows. I hadn't, for a moment, believed what was about to happen. And at the same time, I'd known it every step of the way. The kind of countryside knowledge of how life and death live right next to each other that makes a joke out of human intentions. I caught a glimpse of a bridal veil, but turned away for fear I'd recognize the next faces that came out. I never showed anyone the letter she'd sent me. I told myself it was because she was addled and talking nonsense in her old age, even though her handwriting was clear as always. She ranted and raved about how the villagers were all going into the ground, and soon she'd go with them, how a meal that big would keep it sleeping for a very long time, but not forever. How would it be my turn someday? I spent a whole year trying to track the villagers down with no luck, hoping to prove her wrong beyond a doubt. I didn't find a single one. Still, even with that niggle of suspicion, I was going to come alone. I figure either I'd find nothing and feel stupid, or something would happen to me, and I'd deserve that for starting it. But then, if I were gone too, what would stop it from getting worse? What would stop it from reaching out to the next village, looking to feed? And then the one after that? Would it ever stop? The last words she wrote were these. The dead never sleep. They rest. The road back went by in a haze, shadows moving down the hedgerows beside me. It was dark and raining by the time I walked past our abandoned rental. Josh's rental, in his name. Their tickets, their hotel rooms. I hadn't even taken leave from work, scheduling all my uploads for the weekend instead. Except for the plans we made in our chat logs, I was never there. And those kinds of digital footprints were my playground. Funny how that worked out. Soaking wet, cold, and tired to the bone, I found myself by the highway, headlights zipping past. I stuck my thumb out. This time, it had all worked out. 
I'd have to be a lot more careful next time. As a parent, you want to protect your child from whatever you can. Most of the time, this is doable. Electrical socket tempting for a young finger? I'll pop a cover on that bad boy. That tantalizing shiny handle, so grabbable as daddy's speeding down the freeway? Well, child locks, baby. That flight of steps that looks like it would be so much fun to jump down face first? Mama's way ahead of you with a stair gate. But in this tale, Shared with us by author Johan Thorsen. One dad is forced to deal with the realization that there's nothing you can do to protect your kid from nightmares. Or is there? Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Jeff Clement, and Nicole Doolin. So don't give up. Go above and beyond to keep your kid happy. You could buy them a really expensive game console, or you could reach out to The Dream Giver. Sometimes, in the daylight, I'll find the carcasses of small animals in the brook that runs behind our house. Squirrels and birds, their bodies twisted and bent as if they died in great pain, always downstream from the house. In the middle of the dark night, I am woken like so many nights before by the sounds of our son screaming in his sleep. He's sweating and shaking, and his eyes are clenched shut. I try to console him, wake him up, but he just turns to his side, arches his back, and cries out. He doesn't wake up, never wakes up when I try, just keeps dreaming his terrible dreams through the night. He spends the nights in our bed now. It's just easier for everyone. Our boy can count to ten and pee on his own, but he has to sleep in our bed. If he slept by himself, we might miss something. It's been like this for three months now. The boy eventually settles down and falls back asleep. I get up and sit on the edge of the bed yawn and stand up. I stagger, sleep drunk, to the bedroom door. The air is thick, full of the breath of three sleeping humans in the late summer heat. A dream catcher hangs by the bedroom door, sagging on a nail. It has a bloated look, like it's a balloon, and not a twist of strings and feathers. Full already? Greta is sitting, propped up on one hand with the other feeling the boy's forehead, stroking fingers through his hair. Oh, it gets full sooner and sooner, doesn't it? 
I'll empty it. I take it down and walk outside. Our house is the only one around, a speck in the countryside. Though in the morning, cocks crowing remind me that there are others that live nearby. There's a small incline in the yard behind our house that leads to a stream. It is here I take the dream catcher every night. An almost full moon lights up the stream, little fingers of gray light reaching down through the trees and touching the water, never reaching the bottom. I walk down, legs still stiff and full of sleep. At the stream, I bend down and shake the dream catcher over the water, emptying out the subconscious darkness caught in the web. The freed nightmares mix with the water, flowing silently away in the deep dark of the night. I stand up and stretch. For a moment, I look at the stars. These are my private moments. Sometimes in the daylight, I'll find the carcasses of small animals downstream, bodies twisted and bent as if they died in great pain. I try not to make the connection. I go inside, rehang the dream catcher and try to go back to sleep. It hangs looser on the nail now, light and springy. Before the dream catcher, the boy would wake up screaming in the night and his nose would bleed. My wife would be raw in the morning, short-tempered during the day and dead tired in the evening. For some reason, I love my wife more when she's mad at me. Even after she came back, without any shame or remorse on her face or in her heart, I loved her. We got the dream catcher from a store in town that we never found again. That night was the first in a long time that our son slept through. Uninterrupted sleep, free of dark dreams. The dream catcher was heavy in the morning, the string holding it up taut on the nail. It was certainly heavier than when I had put it up. It had a sheen to it almost oily, and smelled faintly of rotting leaves. The nightmares returned, and then one night, drunk and inspired, I made a symbolic gesture of emptying the dream catcher, calling it useless. But something made me rehang it, and he slept well that night. I then made a habit of emptying it, superstition replacing sense. One night, as I bend over the stream in the dark to shake the heavy nightmares out of the dream catcher, I'm startled by a figure standing on the other side, looking at me. It's tall, hairless and pale, with large eyes that are all black pupil. Its mouth hangs open, and the head is slightly tilted. Skin made of glistening white leather. It exhales in a rasp, and it speaks as it draws its breath back in. You 
I am unable to speak. My heart grabs hold of my lungs and the hairs on my arms stand up as if to escape. The creature looks up at me and then turns its gaze to the dream catcher. It exhales and then speaks again as it draws in air. The voice like a violin string played with a saw. You... The figure keeps its mouth open and I see it has no teeth, no lips. Stay away from me! My voice is small, mousy. I shake the dream catcher violently as I back away towards the house. The figure does not follow. In the bedroom, I peek back at the stream through the curtains while my son moans in his sleep behind me. The creature is still standing there as if rooted to the spot. It looks at the stream, the trees, and the moon. Occasionally, it looks at the house. I hang the dream catcher, and my son returns to an undisturbed, deep sleep. What is it? Nothing. I thought I heard an animal. I do not sleep that night. I call in sick and sleep during the day. The grass has gone gray where I shook the dream catcher in a panic during the night. The next night, my son starts tossing in his slumber, and I get up to empty the dream catcher. Outside, I see the figure again now on my side of the stream. It stares at me as I approach, mouth open. I notice now that it has unnaturally long fingers, tapered into fine points. I call out to it. What do you want? The figure speaks in that same drawn-in way. The dreams are for you. Why do you trick them into a net? My back is a chalkboard, raked with nails. We do not want them. The calmness in my voice surprises me. They disturb my son, ruin his sleep. Never has my love for him been so clear, despite everything. The figure turns its head towards me, to the house, and back towards me. It exhales, mouth hanging open, and then speaks as it inhales. My gifts for you, unwanted. The creature takes a step forward. Unwanted. It snaps its head towards me, and I flinch and take a step back. Unwanted. Name the one who would have them. Name a new dreamer. 
The crickets grow silent, and so does the world. The soft wind that had caressed the leaves stops. All seemed to wait for my answer. The creature exhales. Ribs visible, skin sagging. It inhales and speaks. Dreams for the boy, for the house. The creature points. I think about the boy, and then I think about the mother and all that she has done. I find an anger I didn't know I possessed. The boy's father. Give the dreams to the boy's father. The creature, slim and slick, looks away from the house and over to the next farm. It exhales in preparation of speech. The father. My stomach fills with ice, but then the creature turns away from me, looks east, and starts walking. It is headed towards the Balkney's farm. I always suspected it was him. His eyes brown like my son's. In one swift motion, I break the dream catcher. I make a show of throwing it in the stream. I sleep sinfully well for the rest of the night, as does my son. It's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. That well-known idiom doesn't make it any easier when your soulmate works an incredibly dangerous profession, though. If you let it get to you, you'll live as a bundle of nerves. And then one day, there's that knock on the door with bad news. But in this tale, shared with us by author Ajax Nicholson, it's the second knock that spells the real trouble. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio, Aaron Lillis, Jesse Cornett, Ellie Hirschman, and Mary Murphy. So let this be a cautionary tale. To paraphrase another idiom, it's better to have loved and lost than loved and lost but found them again. At least when they've been marked with a coal tattoo. It was a coal mine where the devil touched him. They came to her door and told her about the collapse, like they told all the wives, and she answered by closing the screen door on their fingers. Ava spoke from the other side of the door. Her voice shook with the screen. Quit it. You, you quit it. Salty equipment, Ava. And on top of it, no face ventilation to speak of. Build-up took the ceiling down with it. And John? 
She still didn't open the door. And it took John with it too? And John too, Ava. Ava took a long time to take a breath, and then said in the steadiest voice she could call up, Go on home then. She spent three days in the house working, because there wasn't much else to do. She spent three days grouting the tile in the bathroom, and laying brickwork for the chimney, and tearing down wallpaper in the bedroom in tiny, infuriating little strips, and screaming. And then John came home. He came alone after three days, with a look on his face like he wasn't quite seeing anything he was looking at. He showed up on the porch step of the house, holding his hat in his hands, standing there on the porch step like a Jehovah's Witness and not like the man she had married, who had as much a claim to this house as she did, who could have simply walked in. Ava opened the door, and a great sweeping crash of relief and terror went over her all at once, and she leaned against the doorway to keep herself standing up. She swallowed three times before she could speak, and when she could, she said, Where you been? It was meant to be lighthearted, some kind of a joke, but John's eyes were all wrong, and it came out angry. They looked frightening like that, wide and far off in the mess of coal all over his face, too white at the corners, like searchlights. After a moment, he seemed to gather himself as he spoke. His voice creaked like he hadn't used it in months, in years. Like he hadn't stood on this porch just three days ago and kissed her goodbye. Let me in. Ava knew better than to take him to a hospital. So instead, she led him into the bathroom and looked him over. Every second she looked at his face was like seeing him for the first time all over again. Relief and something else. It didn't sit right with her. That image of him climbing up out of the mine in that early morning all alone. It was too still, and she pictured it with no sound at all, like a movie with the speakers off. She'd never done that before. There was coal dust on every inch of his face, black in the wrinkles near his eyes, and a dead kind of gray everywhere else. Inside his ears, in the corners of his mouth. She had a kind of knee-jerk kick of fear looking at him, like slipping and almost falling. Before standing on her porch looking at him, something in her had said, very loud, don't let that in. It must have shown on her face because his searchlight eyes snapped up to her in the bathroom, and he said in that voice, Ask if you're gonna ask. Ava bent to start cleaning cuts and bruises, trying to busy herself with something familiar. She didn't meet his eyes. It felt like she didn't recognize them when she looked straight at them. She asked anyway. What happened? John just shook his head. Most of the coal was clean from him now, save for a blue spot on the back of his neck, almost like a fingerprint. I don't know. It came out sounding like he was lying to her. One minute, please, just... Now don't touch that. Don't touch that, Ava. I just want to get this spot. You won't get it. Leave it. Ava stopped. The clock in the hallway just across the bathroom stopped, too. The sudden silence without the clock was so absolute it was like being submerged in water. When did you get this? It's nothing. I know what it is, John. When she said his name, he flinched away from her, just for a second. It's nothing. His eyes went to the floor, to the brand new gleaming tile Ava had put in when she'd been half mourning his death 
Before he'd survived the cave-in. That wasn't right. Before he'd survived. He'd always survived, hadn't he? The tattoo was blue-black, just a smudge of a thing on the back of John's neck. But he hadn't had it when he left three days ago. She was sure of it. It was Cole that made such a thing. Cole under the skin and then healed over. It took a long time, longer than three days. She was so sure of it. When did you get this? Something in the question made her heart start beating too fast. There was a long beat, during which the clock ticked just one time, like the twitch of a dying animal. And John met her eyes. And then the wrong voice came out, strong and sure. I had it for years. How'd you not notice? There was something off about his voice, his eyes, the set of his shoulders, as if someone else was wearing him. Ava's body went very cold. You sure as hell have not had it for years. She went to inspect the mark on his neck again. It looked like a cold tattoo, but it didn't feel like one. The air over it was cold when her fingers got near it, and John flinched away again like she'd burned him. It's nothing. Shit, leave it. Then he got up and left the room, abruptly, and Ava had so much on her mind over it that she didn't notice the clock start ticking again. He didn't come to bed that night, or the next, or the night after. Ava had strange dreams. John walking out of the house in his bare feet and coming home covered in dirt and coal dust, standing in the corner of her room and just watching. John hunched over in front of the collapsed mineshaft, digging with his hands like a dog, panting. John, standing in the doorway of the house, holding the door wide open and crying. She knew they were only dreams. She'd never seen John cry. But they still stayed there in her chest when she woke in the morning. And when she came down to go to work, she'd always find John sitting at the kitchen table and staring at the clock over the sink, like he was looking for God in it. People at work asked about the cave-in. She gave the same answers over and over. Yes, he's fine, thank you. Late Tuesday night, I think. Yes, yes, thank God, thank God, yes, praise the Lord. Sue Ellen, who worked nights and always came in after her shift for pancakes at seven on the dot, looked at her and asked, Ava, I swear I seen your John sleepwalking up Frederick Holler last night. Ava laughed, tripped over herself pouring Sue Ellen's tea. Silly. She was laughing still, but her heart was beating so fast it was hard to keep it in her chest. She had to fight, just for a second, to stop herself reaching in and tearing it out. She kept laughing until Sue Ellen gave her a look and paid without eating. The next night, John finally slept in their bed. Ava hoped it would help with her nightmares, but they were worse. She dreamed he got up and stood over her for a long time, much taller than he was meant to be. She dreamed he stood there and whispered, Let me out. Let me out. Let me out. Let me out. Over and over in a trembling, desperate kind of voice. She dreamed he shook when he said it. She dreamed he turned around and walked out the front door, and she dreamed he came back again smelling like dirt and water and stink damp. In the morning, John made them coffee and kept scratching the back of his neck. His feet were bare, and there was a shock of black dirt on the soles of them. The sight of it took everything out of Ava's chest all at once. Blood, breath, all of it. She opened her mouth to ask, but John suddenly turned toward her very sharply, so sharply it was awful to look at, 
turned to the wall one second and fully facing her the next with no in-between. The hot coffee pot sloshed all over the floor and his filthy bare feet and his hand, which turned very bright red and must have hurt, and which John didn't even look at. Would you like to see it? His accent was all wrong, and he hadn't said anything at all to her in almost two days. Ava looked at the coffee all over the floor, and the stain on the sleeve of John's shirt, and the growing red spot of burned skin on his hand. See what? John dropped the coffee pot, and it shattered on the floor. The sound was so loud in the quiet of the kitchen, it made Ava scream, and John cursed and went about mopping it up, Damn it. grumbling to himself. Shit. After a moment, Ava heard herself asking, See what? John looked up at her from the floor. Huh? Would I like to see what, John? John dumped the broken pieces of the coffee pot in the trash. He looked at her and shook his head. What the hell are you talking about? It was three more days when she saw him leave the house. Ava didn't wait up for him. She hadn't done since that first night. She fixed herself a drink, and she got into bed, and she went straight to sleep. Only she didn't. There was some feeling keeping her up, like something standing over her shoulder. She lay awake with her eyes wide open, trying to place it, staring at the corner of the room where the ceiling met the wall. The moonlight moved from low down in the window to up high, started spilling through the blinds in huge silver streaks. John didn't come to bed, didn't turn on the television, didn't tinker in the living room or down the hall. She figured he was still sitting up in the kitchen with all the lights on. Wasn't the first time he'd done that. When he'd been underground for too long, sometimes he would keep all the lights on for days, like he didn't want to be in the dark anymore. But there was something about the stillness that settled over the house now. Absolute. Smothering. As if it was holding its breath. As if it was slipping away from existence at all. And Ava went into the kitchen. Like she was compelled to. The screen door slammed shut, and Ava just caught John's back disappearing down the deer trail and the side of the house. John? Her voice, when it hit the air, seemed to slam straight into it and fall down flat on the ground. It left her with the breathless impression that it hadn't gone anywhere, that it had stopped dead as soon as it left her mouth. Nothing answered. No rustling of leaves. No shuffle of branches. It was as if the earth had opened itself up and swallowed John whole. All at once, Ava felt the open door at her back like something awful, like the mouth of a cave. Something old and deep down in her told her not to turn her back to it, then screamed it at her until it was all she could think of. She took one step in John's direction and felt sick with it. That ancestral kind of fear. Certain something was standing up tall and dark behind her and walking straight through the open door. If she would only just turn around and look. And she stumbled on the porch steps in her haste to get back in. She locked the door behind her and stood with her back to it for a long time, eyes stuck to the warm, familiar yellow of the kitchen light just down the hall. She didn't know how much time passed before the door opened again. She felt it more than she heard it. The house was so utterly, horribly still that the sound of the door, quiet, easy, no turn of a lock, and hadn't she put the chain up, seemed like a thing that happened to the whole frame of the house, all the way to the foundations. Ava looked back to the door with a pit in her stomach and a pit in the back of her mind that she couldn't shake. 
John was standing there in the hallway. He was just standing there, still as glass. She didn't even see him breathing. He was stark naked and covered in coal dust. There were lines of it all over his back, his arms, his legs. His fingers and his hands were pitch black like he'd been digging his hands into it. He looked like half a shadow. Baby, what are you doing? John didn't move. The clock had stopped ticking again, the same way it had done that first afternoon. Ava felt like her breath was coming slower instead of faster, like her heartbeat was weakened to nothing. John was facing her, but he wasn't looking at her. He wasn't looking at anything. John? Ava was struck with a bone-deep feeling that that was the wrong name. Like, first meeting someone and not remembering it. She had to lean over to stop herself from throwing up on the floor at the sudden certainty of it. John's eyes were fixed on the ceiling, a kind of focus on his face that was hard to look at. Ava realized all at once that he was smiling. So wide it stretched the coal into awful shapes on his face. So wide that it distorted everything Ava had come to recognize about him. John. There was a tangible cold coming off his neck, where the coal tattoo was. The closer Ava got, the more she could feel it. Like a draft on his skin. She reached forward to touch it, fingers shaking. This close, she could see that she'd been wrong before. It wasn't a fingerprint. It was too big for that spreading out across the back of his neck like a hand. She wasn't sure how she could have missed that earlier, or in the days since. Only she must have, because she could see it now, clear as anything. Bruise blue, two long fingers wrapping around the sides of John's neck, and the smear of a palm right at the base of his skull. She could have sworn it was smaller. Something old said to Ava, do not touch that. The same thing that had screamed for her to get inside earlier. The same thing that told her not to touch an open flame or pick up a snake or look down a mineshaft. Ava pulled her fingers away from the mark like it had burned her. Looking at the way he was smiling. Wide. So wide. And it looked manic. Unhinged except for the way he was breathing real slow and even. Ava felt the sudden urge to slap John across the face. So that's what she did. The smile dropped off his face so fast it was like he'd never been doing it. And he looked at her like a man waking up from a dream. Ava. Ava breathed for what seemed like the first time in days. You asleep? Uh, I guess. John scratched the back of his neck. He looked down at himself. I ain't got no clothes on. No, baby. Huh? Ava didn't say anything. John's hand slowed at the back of his own neck, just rubbing the cold tattoo over and over like he didn't notice he was doing it. Then, after a moment, like he was compelled, John said, And this dream. Ava had the sudden, shrinking feeling of being very small in an incomprehensibly large space. Or maybe the opposite. She didn't want to hear. She didn't want to hear it. She wanted him to stop talking. She needed him to stop. It seized her by the neck, the need. I was back at the mine. I was back at the mine and I was digging something out. I don't want to hear it. Her voice fell lifelessly on the floor. It barely made it out, and it couldn't have made it all the way to him. I got close. His voice got darker, and the shadows in the corners of the hallway got darker, 
and the tattoo on his neck got darker. I got close. We almost... John! It came out this time, and the shock of her own voice had her saying it again, voice shaking all over. John! It was utterly, despicably, consumingly quiet in that hallway. No crickets outside, no air conditioner, no clock ticking, no heartbeats. John looked at her then, face very serious. He reached forward and gripped her by the shoulders, smearing her shirt with coal. His grip was shaking, bruising, and he shook her a little with urgency, with a voice that told her he desperately wanted to know the answer. What was I digging out? What was... What was I digging out? Ava had the sudden urge to scream, or shriek and speak in tongues like she'd seen people do in church. It was an odd sensation to feel it in her chest like that, like an itch on the inside. John asked it again. Every word felt just a little worse. What was I digging out? I don't know. But she did know. In our final tale, we join Dan. Dan's a man with a plan. The overgrown garden he plans to scan of his rental house in southwest England a year after his occupancy began. But in this tale, shared with us by author Simon Bleakin, Dan's resolve might weaken when he discovers that this is no Garden of Eden, but rather serves as a beacon for forces dark and heathen. Our merry performers recounting this tale are David Alt and Andy Cresswell. Lord, what fools these mortals be. The course of true love never did run smooth. If we shadows have offended, then please do tell, for we seek out the tree by the well. We lived in the house in a quiet corner of Wiltshire for almost a year before we discovered its terrible secret, the well and the old tree brooding next to it. That may be hard to imagine, but life was so busy that there never seemed time to properly settle and explore. My partner Nathan and I were renting the property called Heerglia through a private agreement with the landlord. It was a strange old house with crooked walls and oddly angled door and window frames. Nathan, ever the joker, was quick to point out that we were not ones to worry about things being straight. Yet, with the ensuing move, entailing the steep learning curve of new jobs and getting set up in a whole new location far from family and friends, all other aspects of our lives got put on hold, including my passion for gardening. The garden had grabbed my attention as soon as we looked at the house, so it is ironic that I neglected an exploration of it for so long. It stretched on forever, 
a tangled morass of vegetation, darkly tranquil, opening out beyond the spreading shade of two old oaks that stood like, like sentinels at the entrance. If you walked far enough into those shady depths you discovered, beyond a shallow pond surrounded by wild raspberries and hazel thickets, hidden behind the softly swaying yellow heads of dandelion, the barest glimpse of an old crumbling wall resting patiently within an enclosing mantle of greenery, the final fading traces of a former human presence here. Beyond this, the garden turned truly feral, with spiny shrubs and coiling bramble, whilst nightshade and foxglove beguiled with poisonous beauty in the shadows cast by dense pockets of dark-buried elder. And that, for almost a year, had been the extent of my exploration of it. But the incessant distractions of modern life can only be obeyed for so long. Stress and the relentless demands of my job had ground me down emotionally and physically. I realized that in moving, I had lost myself along the way. All the things that brought vibrancy into my world had fallen by the wayside before the bland necessities of daily life. So I booked two weeks leave to explore the land around the house, mapping future plans for the garden and attending to whatever things I could do right away. I felt a rush of delight when I finally ventured beyond the broken wall. It was a glorious June morning, and the stifling heat of summer surrounded me. Pollen drifted in the air like oversized dust motes, and sunlight glinted on the cobwebs between the leaves. I was keenly aware of the sticky discomfort of my sweat-soaked t-shirt pressing against my back, but I didn't care. I had a garden to explore. The paradox of gardens has always struck me. At first glance, they can appear soothing and gentle places to relax and soak up the sun on a summer's afternoon or watch the golden leaves in autumn. Yet every inch is in reality a savage battleground where life and death play out constantly, a brutal struggle hidden beneath the soft green leaves and rough bark as death feeds life. Nature demands blood. It has no place for mawkish sentimentality, only a ruthless drive for survival. In some gardens, this is harder to see than others. Some are so neatly manicured by the hand of humanity that the dance of life and death feels like a, a dirty secret hidden beneath the pruned rose bushes and tidy lawns. Others exude it proudly, wearing their wildness for all to see. This space, so long gone without anyone to tend it, was one such place. From the choking tendrils of the bindroot to the cunning spider cocooning the fly, and the plants all desperately vying for sunlight and resources, growing against the ravenous onslaught of slug and snail, this was a garden red in tooth and thorn. I moved through the dappled light filtering through the canopy above, surrounded by darting insects streaked with gold and scarlet. The world felt abnormally still, like time had become suspended. Carefully, I pushed aside a coiled mass of bramble heavy with ripening blackberries. My heart was racing, though I couldn't explain why. A vague sense of having stepped beyond where I was permitted had settled on me. 
As the thorns parted, I looked out upon a natural grassy clearing surrounded by a dense and circling boundary of ash, hawthorn, and oak. An old well of weathered grey stone lay in the heart of this clearing, beside a lone tree which was gnarled and bent with age, but whose heavy branches still bore curious fruit. Around this were the remains of a ring of toppled sarsen stones, ancient and mossy, buried beneath the tall grasses that danced and whispered in the breeze, a sound answered only by the gentle rustling of the trees bordering the clearing. Quietly, I entered that silent circle of toppled stones, pausing to rest my hand against the closest as I passed it. I felt nothing but the smooth, warm stone beneath my fingers, and for a moment laughed to myself. I'm not actually sure what I had expected to feel, but this place had an atmosphere to it, a kind of numinous reverence I had previously only felt in very old churches. For a moment I simply stood and marvelled at it all, not only the size of the clearing, but that it had remained hidden and secret for so long. The tree was my first port of call. I stepped over a ring of toadstools that encircled it and walked slowly around the trunk, staring up at those twisted branches with fascination. It bore a deeply fissured bark, and sharp thorns protruded from the branches much like a hawthorn. However, the leaves were the wrong shape and size, and those curious fruits looked more like the spiked fruits of the deadly datura plant, but laced with thin veins of deep crimson. Intrigued, I reached up to touch one, feeling the unexpected roughness of the skin. A pulsing warmth came from within it, like holding a beating heart. I released it as sharp pain shot through my finger, and a gold and scarlet insect with iridescent wings took off into the afternoon air from the back of the fruit. I clearly saw the bone-white stinger at the tip of its abdomen. Blood welled up like a blister on my finger, and I had an odd compulsion to wipe it on one of the leaves as I gazed up at the tree once more. It didn't match any tree species I had seen before. I knew right away that I would need to consult my books back at the house if I had any chance of solving this enigma. So I wandered to the well instead, gazing down into the black water which shimmered as drips fell from the moss lining the inside. The earthy fragrance filled my nose, and I took on a curious sense of tranquility as I breathed it in, as if a great burden had lifted from my shoulders. I was aware only of the sounds of the leaves rustling around me, the gentle whispering of the grass, and the soft, muted drips striking the water far below me. I lost all track of time in the stillness of that place. The world just fell away. The sun was setting when I finally blinked and looked up. Had I really been standing there all day? It seemed impossible, but then hollow hunger growled in my stomach. I had tremors in my legs and ache in my feet and calves. 
I hurried home, knowing Nathan would have been back from work for several hours. And sure enough, as I raced between the two guardian oaks towards the house, I saw both his car parked outside and the telltale flicker from the television in the front room window. I bustled in through the front door. Where have you been? I've been ringing your phone for an hour. I was out in the garden. I forgot my phone. I'm sorry. I was worried, Dad. He stood up, welcoming me with a hug. He was a native Wiltshire man with a quick wit and a jovial gleam in his brown eyes, not to mention a beautiful smile. I know a lot of people saw only the Joker in him, but I knew that underneath lay a heart of gold and a sensitive soul. I'd like you to leave your phone behind. I just lost track of time. It wasn't the whole truth, but it was close enough and avoided any awkward questions that I was in no position to answer. After dinner, I left him watching a historical documentary whilst I escaped into the conservatory armed only with a Terry Pratchett book and a steaming mug of Earl Grey. Those ancient history documentaries Nathan loved were too dry for my tastes, especially ones about tombs and mummies and things buried in sand. My own guilty pleasure was reruns of Rosemary and Time, but Nathan couldn't stand it. In many ways, we were an odd couple. He loved his history and politics, and I loved music and plants. Thankfully, viewing clashes were rarely a problem because of the conservatory. It was my domain, and there, with Kate Bush blasting from the CD player, I snuggled into my favourite reading spot near the window and vanished into the Discworld. Sometime later, I looked up, shivering. Dusk was falling. I sat in a tiny oasis of light cast by the lamp beside me as the growing darkness of night swallowed the room. Setting down the book, I closed the small upper window, staring out at the sky as the liminal spell of dusk was cast over the world. The moon was rising, etching the edges of the world in silvery highlights. A small stone struck the glass next to me with such force I physically gasped. I stepped back, momentarily confused. Another hit the window directly in front of me. It glanced off and into the bushes at the side of the house. When the third stone hit the window, I snapped. Without thinking, I threw open the door and stormed out into the night, shouting angrily at whoever was doing it. But as I furiously checked behind trees and bushes, it quickly became apparent the garden was empty. Nathan was waiting in the doorway as I returned. What's going on? Someone was throwing stones. I pointed at the windows. I was still shaking. Lucky they didn't break the glass. Probably kids. He shivered. The night had stolen the heat of the day away with it. Or unfriendly locals. I gave the shadows one final glare. I told you, that woman in the post office won't even look me in the eye now that she knows we're not roommates. It's like a throwback to the 50s around here. Can't imagine Mrs. Powell hiding out here throwing stones. Then if it was people out to cause trouble, what were you going to do to them? You hit like a wet paper bag. I stepped inside and he shut the door. I don't know. I had to do something.
I was kept awake that night by the incessant scratching of a branch against the bedroom window until it felt like my eyes would burst and my sanity would snap. Nathan never had any trouble sleeping and I was thankful he wasn't a snorer. My dreams, when they finally came, were odd, no doubt resulting from extreme fatigue. I found myself standing naked in the grass before the gnarled, thorny tree, a full moon high overhead etching the branches in silver, my fingers clawing and digging into the bark. A thick sap was running from underneath it, black in the moonlight, and I leaned in, smearing my hands with it and rubbing it into my face and body, tasting its coppery taint on my tongue with a wild thrill of delight. It was only then that I realised it was blood. I awoke late the following morning. Nathan had already gone to work, so I made toast and paste restlessly, waiting for the coffee to kick in. When I felt as close to human as I suspected I was going to get, I put on an old pair of jeans and a t-shirt, bundled several of my tree books into a rucksack, and set off for the garden. I noticed the scratches on the front door as I was locking it. There were dozens of them, covering the whole of the surface, running in lines of five. They looked like claw marks, except they were too deep and fine to have been made by a cat and ran up the entire height of the door. Only the space around the old iron knocker was untouched. It must have happened in the night, and I felt an uneasy apprehension as I wondered if a person with a knife could have made them. Reluctantly, I forced myself onwards into the garden. You're being stupid, I told myself. Do not let this ruin your day. But I sent a text to Nathan all the same, telling him what had happened and asking him if he could get the afternoon off to help me. I made straight for the well and the curious tree as though drawn to it. For some reason, I felt safer in the hidden garden beyond the wall than I did close to the house. However, as I approached the ring of fallen sarsens, I saw feathers drifting on the breeze and catching in the tall grass. Something had made a fresh kill on one of the ancient blocks. The torn carcass of a dead pigeon lay sprawled before the mid-morning sun, red splashes stark against the pale stone. This time I was sure it had been a cat. The carcass had been ripped apart. I left it alone for nature to dispose of and hurried on to the twisted tree. For hours I pored over my books, sitting in the shade of that tree, flicking through page after page, looking up anything that might have been the remotest match. But nothing was. As I read, I listened to the sound of the leaves rustling in the wind and soon became aware of a different sound on the afternoon breeze, like a distant church bell or a faint wind chime. I became so entranced by it that when Nathan called out to me several hours later, I jumped. I sent loads of texts that I was coming home after lunch, even tried calling. He hadn't stopped to change and looked hot and uncomfortable in his shirt and tie. You weren't kidding about this place. It's impressive. A quick check of my phone revealed no signal at all. Sorry, no reception out here. I slipped it back into my pocket and joined him at the ring of fallen blocks. When you said we had a stone circle, I thought you meant a small one. These are almost as large as the stones in Avebury. 
Shame they aren't still standing. Druids built these, didn't they? He crouched down to look at the blocks. No, stone circles are older than that. Neolithic. So, not druids? Their ancestors, maybe. Who knows? He caught sight of the dead bird, still spread out in tatters across one of the larger blocks. Behold, even to this day, cats still come here to sacrifice to their cat gods. Adorned with garlands of fresh catnip, no doubt. He looked uncomfortable in his work clothes, dark sweat patches under his arm and down his back. You should have changed first. You look hot. You look pretty good yourself. He winked, then laughed. (laughs) You sounded worried, so I came right over. I saw the door. Not sure what did that, but it looks like claw marks. Maybe a cat or a badger? World's biggest, then. It goes up to the top of the door. What big heap of randy badgers clawing at our door? Look, I really don't know. But we'll keep an eye on it and call the police if it happens again. That's your answer to everything. That's your mystery tree. He nodded at it. Very Tim Burton. See why you like it. Still can't work out what it is, though. Horse chestnut, isn't it? With thorns? I gave him a wry smile. Plus, those leaves are all wrong. It's a mutant horse chestnut. He smiled back. Tell you what, I'll go and get changed and get started on dinner. Give you a few more hours out of you? I'd like that. Thanks for coming home. The afternoon sun was still warm and bright, and I felt better knowing Nathan wasn't far away. So I settled back into the shade of the tree, telling myself I would spend only one more hour at most trying to figure it out. As I flicked through the pages, feeling the texture of the paper against my fingertips, something dropped into the grass beside me, startling me out of the book. It was one of the spiked fruits. I glanced up in surprise. The green leaves above me were now a deep golden red, curling and dropping to the ground as though in autumn, sailing down as they returned to the soil to feed the tree in death as they had in life. I scrambled to my feet in confusion, wondering what had caused this abrupt change. Those barbed branches, now devoid of leaves and fruit, looked skeletal and menacing, and I suddenly longed for the shelter of Heerglare. I arrived home to find Nathan crouching by the front door, putting something into an old plastic bag. He glanced around as I approached, surprised to see me. You finished for the day? I nodded. What's that? Another dead bird, poor thing. Cats can be so evil. There is no evil in nature, only survival. Everything feeds on something else, a constant spiral of life out of death. How delightfully morbid of you. Although, as a vegetarian, I don't feed on life. Plants are living things, dummy. 
I faked a laugh, but it was just a mask to cover my growing unease. I hoped Nathan wouldn't notice, but he knew me too well to be fooled. Are you feeling all right? He tied the bag shut and dropped it into the bin. Still a bit spooked. First time I've felt unsafe here. I'll have a word with the landlord. That might make things worse. You're probably right. Kids throwing stones and a big badger at the door. Let's see how things go. We've not had any trouble before. Hopefully it'll all just go away again. If not, then we'll do something. I hardly had any appetite that evening, merely picking at the lasagna that Nathan had cooked. A great weariness had come over me, and every muscle and fibre in my body ached. Nathan watched me with concern, his own plate cleaned, and when I set down my fork with a sigh, he frowned. Is something wrong with it? I'm just not hungry. It's your favourite. I'm really sorry. I'll heat it up tomorrow for lunch. I think I might be coming down with something. I feel shattered and I ache. Did you drink enough today? I forgot to take anything with me. You're probably dehydrated. It was baking out there. I'll take some water up to bed and get an early night. I'll be up later. He took away my barely touched plate. Shout if I have the TV on too loud, okay? The welcome stillness of the bedroom was like a soft blanket waiting to enfold me. I shut the windows despite the lingering heat of the evening and pulled the curtains closed, adding glorious darkness to the mix. The aches and weariness of the day faded from my body as I lay on the sheets and pressed my head against the pillow, I must have fallen asleep instantly, for the next thing I knew was opening my eyes to a room etched in moonlight and shadow. The curtains were drawn back and billowed in the breeze from the open windows. My first thought was that Nathan must have opened them, but then I realized his side of the bed was empty. Nathan? From the foot of the bed came a sound like the scratching of thorns against wood and a shrill, harsh wheeze of breath. Nathan? I peered over the covers. In the moonlight, I glimpsed a hunched, twisted thing crouching in the corner of the room. Spiny limbs like thorny branches tipped with slender needles, a face like old scrunched bark and round, unblinking eyes like nightshade berries. It couldn't have been more than two or three feet high. I froze. My hands clenched into fists under the covers. The moon passed behind a cloud, shrouding the room in darkness. I heard the awful soft creaking of the floorboards at the side of the bed. It was coming towards me. Spiny feet scraped against wood. I tried to scream, but the sound was locked in my throat. My whole body was paralyzed and my eyes were useless in the blackness. My hands were clenched so tightly I had lost all feeling in them. The wheezing came again from next to me now. 
A sudden weight sprang up onto the bed. Then, as the clouds shifted and the moonlight returned, I stared once more into those round black eyes, inches from my own. The scream snagged inside my throat, finally burst free. From the corner of my eye, I saw the landing light come on. Nathan was rushing up the stairs. I blinked, and the creature was gone. Nathan was hurrying into the room. It took him over an hour to calm me down. He had fallen asleep in front of the television and had woken only when he heard my cries. He had, of course, seen nothing of the creature that I had witnessed. I think he assumed it had been just a bad dream on my part. Do you believe in fairies? I asked him over a mug of strong black coffee. I was sitting in the kitchen watching the stairs carefully in case anything came creeping down them. My hands were still trembling and I was trying not to spill anything. You know I can't stand that Disney rubbish. I'm serious. Do you believe that there could be? Or something, I don't know, out there that people have forgotten about? Nature, spirits, or... I tailed off. I had no other explanations. Never really thought about it. Why, is that what you think you saw? It wasn't a bad dream. I was awake the whole time. Maybe it just felt that way. I know the difference. Okay. He held up his hands. My stubbornness was legendary and he knew when to admit defeat. But no, I don't believe in fairies. All I know is it's gone three and I have to go to work tomorrow. You better get some sleep. Are you coming? I shook my head. The thought of going back into that room, even with Nathan lying next to me, was too much to bear. I'll be up in a bit. I lied. Just want to calm down first. I slept downstairs on the sofa that night with a fire poker next to me and the lights on. I hadn't actually intended to sleep, but fatigue made the choice for me. I still slept fitfully, though, waking several times with a start, heart racing, certain that something would be in the room with me. I finally got up shortly before dawn and had breakfast ready for Nathan when he came downstairs for work. An unspoken concern hung heavily in the air as he chewed on his toast. He gave me furtive glances when he thought I wasn't looking. I'm all right. I assured him finally, pouring a fresh cup of coffee for both of us. You haven't been yourself lately. These panic attacks and all this talk about fairies. Maybe you should go and see the doctor. I know how stressed you've been at work. There's no shame in needing help with that. I'm not depressed or having a breakdown. I'm just... Look, I'm fine, really. Text or call if you need anything. I'm in a meeting most of the morning, but around this afternoon. Thanks, but don't worry. I reached over to straighten his tie. He touched my hand. 
I'm here for you. Let me help. You do. I answered, brushing my finger against his cheek. After he had gone, I spent the morning pottering about the house. The garden no longer called to me like it had previously, and in truth I knew I was avoiding it. Everything had started the moment I found that clearing and the tree. I knew it somehow. It was irrational, it made no sense, but it felt like I had woken something by going there, or at least drawn its attention. I remembered the blood I had been compelled to wipe onto its leaves and shivered. I tried to tell myself I was being crazy, uh, reading too much into things. Now, in the cold light of day, some perverse part of my being had even started to question if I had simply dreamed or imagined the creature in the corner of the room. I no longer knew what to trust or what to think. I only hoped that perhaps if I stayed away, whatever was happening might do the same. I had just finished sorting through the bathroom cupboards around 11 when a crash thundered downstairs, followed by the sound of something rolling across the kitchen floor. With my heart in my throat, I hurried downstairs, grabbing a spray bottle of bathroom bleach which I brandished like a gun. It wasn't much of a weapon, but it felt better to have something. The kitchen cupboards were all open and glass jars and tins were rolling across the floor as I edged into the room. The cereal boxes were also on their side, and a whole bag of flour had been emptied over the kitchen table. Anger and fear surged within me at the same time, like water bursting from a geezer. Get out of our house! I whirled around the room, checking corners and peering under the table for any sign of an intruder. But aside from all the mess, nothing else looked out of place in any other room, and all the doors were still locked. I felt hopelessly vulnerable, knowing that these things could come into my home at any time and knowing that Nathan didn't believe me. Reluctantly, I made an effort to tidy the kitchen, but my skin was still crawling and I kept glancing over my shoulder, convinced I was being watched. The whole house felt different, changed somehow. I saw something jutting out from underneath one of the old heavy cupboards. It was the edge of an old photograph, covered in years of dust and lint. I pulled it free and carefully wiped it clean over at the sink. As I cleared away the layers of accumulated grime, I realized it was of the stone circle and the strange tree that grew within it. Half of the stones were still standing in it, but the rest looked as overgrown and wild as it did today. The tree was likewise unchanged, still as gnarled and twisted as I knew it, and still clearly bearing those curious spiny fruits. Spidery handwriting covered the back of the image in ink that had faded with the years, but was just still legible. Abandoned ring of stones around the cursed, unseely tree, 1934. Unseely. The word rang a bell somewhere in my memory, and I frantically tried to recall where I had seen or heard it before. Drawing a blank, I snatched up my phone to run a search on the word when I noticed a missed call was showing in the top corner of the display, along with the icon that I had an unplayed message waiting. It was from Nathan. I got your text. What happened? 
I'll be home as early as I can, but I can't keep doing this. I think the boss is about ready to lynch me. A cold chill ran through me as I dialed his number. I hadn't sent him a text. I hadn't touched my phone all day until now. But there was no answer, and suddenly, as I stood there, I realized I could also hear his phone ringing from outside the window, too. Nathan's car was parked in the driveway. The doors were all open and the paintwork was covered in hundreds of deep scratches. The phone still rang from inside Nathan's jacket folded on the seat, but there was no sign of him. My heart quickened and the first flutters of panic stirred as I noticed the churned gravel by the driver's side door. It looked like something had been struggling or dragged across the driveway and towards those two oaks in the garden. I ran to the sarsen stones in a blind panic, my head swimming as uneasy thoughts and fears struck me like storm waves against a rock. Something ahead was blowing in the breeze like large pieces of black, white and blue confetti. I realised a moment later it was the remains of Nathan's clothes torn to ragged shreds. His watch lay on one of the sarsens, smashed and gleaming in the sunlight, and I tripped over one of his shoes in the long grass as I hurried towards the tree by the well. There was something in the tree. I couldn't make out what it was at first because the sun was directly in my eyes. But as I drew closer, my worst fears became real. It was Nathan. He hung naked and upside down from those thorny branches. His body was riddled with deep scratches and lacerations as if he had been pulled through a mass of thorns. His throat had been ripped open and his glassy eyes stared sightlessly at me from a red mask of dried blood. My knees gave out and I collapsed onto the grass. I didn't cry or scream. I just stared, my whole body shaking. Some part of my mind battled against my senses, telling me that this couldn't be real. Meadowsweet, lavender and heather had been bound into his hair and also around his pubic region, and strands of greenery had been carefully wound around his penis like some kind of bizarre maple. The blood had long since stopped flowing, and what remained around the wounds was coagulated, buzzing with flies. But his blood had sprayed out across the grass, soaking into the dark soil around the roots of the tree as though nourishing it. That was when I screamed. It was a wail of anguish that I didn't think would end. I screamed until my lungs ached and it seemed my heart would burst from the effort as my hands clawed into the soil as though trying to get back all the blood that had been drained into it. It was the feeling of being watched that finally spurred me to my senses. The rustling leaves whispered and taunted and I had to get away from the awful sight in that tree. I couldn't bring myself to try moving his body so I fled back to the house. The feeling of being watched followed me all the way home.
I never called the police. There's nothing they can do, and I know they'd never find the body even if they looked. Why drag others into this? Instead, I am sitting now, writing these words for you. I don't know if they will let you find them, and I no longer care. Soon I'll hear those little hands rattling at the windows, those sharp claws scraping against the door. They'll come for me, because they have long been without offerings and are hungry for blood now that I have drawn their attention to us. I won't run. Without Nathan, there is nowhere I want to go. At least this way, I might be with him again soon. Our ancient ancestors recognized the raw power of nature. They built stone circles to honor and chart it, and made offerings in efforts to placate it. They understood what we have since forgotten, that nature is the true master of this world, not humanity, and that it is often terrifying and brutal. The death of one life is but a harvest for the next. We have lost our place in the natural order. We cloak our wildness behind designer labels, social conventions and fancy new technologies, but it is all still there, lurking raw and primal just beneath the surface. All the denial in the world won't change that. For all our advances and discoveries, a simple and single truth remains. The blood feeds the land as it always has. As the fires wane and embers glow, our stories cease as shadows grow. The night is long and darkness deep. Remain with us. Embrace No Sleep. The No Sleep Podcast is presented by Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mikulski. Jeff Clement and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor in chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit the NoSleepPodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member who is under our spell. This audio production is copyright 2021 and 2022 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.